Today, you are going to hear about all sorts of things teaching, being a music major, performing, and then most importantly, Black History Month and the significance and the evolution of Black music through the years in America and how to go about certain sticky situations and how to handle situations that might trigger really negative emotions for some people. And so, without further ado, let's head in. I am super excited to introduce our special guest today, Justin Swain. So Justin, he is my Martello, my Martello. Uh, we did La Boheme together and it was so much fun and we toured around Columbus. We did that with Opera Columbus when they did that. And so I got to be ridiculous with him and he was such a good sport being like, I'm going to hang all over you and like do all these crazy things to you. And so it was so fun. So um, welcome, Justin. We're so excited to have you here. Why don't, for those that don't know you, why don't you give us a little background about yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Chelsea. Um, as Chelsea said, my name is Justin. I'm a classically trained baritone. Um, my pronouns are he, him, his. I um, have two master's degrees from Ohio State University, uh, one in vocal performance, the other in vocal pedagogy. Um, I am a voice and piano teacher and studio owner. Um, and I've been performing now professionally, I guess, for seven or eight years, primarily around Columbus. And yeah, I'm an educator. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And tell us a little bit about when did this journey for music start with you? Maybe there was a defining moment. Maybe there was a time in your childhood or maybe there was an experience that you had in your childhood that kind of set things off for you or a piece of music that you heard or saw. So tell us, how did this all start for you? Absolutely. So um, music was always super important in our household. So um, I did not grow up in the greatest of circumstances, and I very publicly um, share that knowledge um, just because I have had so many opportunities to work with children from um, underprivileged areas. Um, so I grew up in extreme poverty, lots of issues at home from drug abuse to emotional abuse, um, trauma survivor. So um, music was always kind of that balm, no matter what was going on in life, whether it be inside the household or outside the household. Um, we were always singing. We were always listening to music. Um, grew up listening to a lot of Motown, um, just because that was my parents' uh, favorite kind of music. Um, lots and lots of um, influence from just R&B, gospel, um, etc. And for me, again, growing up in poverty, voice was the one instrument that you didn't have to pay for. Um, it was inherently your own from the moment of birth. And so we were always singing. My father was a singer. Um, my mother, she kind of dabbled at piano when she was a child, I guess, but um, she wasn't really that much of a musician. Um, I've always said it's taken a village to kind of like get me to where I'm at. And a lot of my influences and my teachers um, or my mentors are my teachers. 
um, primarily my music teachers from a very early age. So I studied trumpet in elementary school, um, and then I did choir in elementary school, and my trumpet and my choir teacher, they were married, um, and did choir literally all through K-12. And I just remember always having so much joy any time that it was time for music. And I tried to fight it my sixth grade year. I decided that I was going to be an art major because we had um, our uh, gym, music, or art. And we could have that class three times a week for the entire year. And I decided I'm going to be an art major because everybody else is a musician in my family and I want to be the special one. Um, and so I fought it as long as possible. And by the end of that year, I love art. I still create um, but music was always a passion of mine. Um, and then in high school, I again decided I'm going to rebel against all of the expectations um, and all <laughs> that literally everyone had for me. Um, you're going to go on and you're going to be a professional musician. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm going to be a biologist. And I remember my senior year of high school, my choir director pulling me off to the side and he's like, I've arranged for voice lessons for you. You are going to audition um, for music. Um, your grades state otherwise that biology is probably not in the cards for you. So um, he uh, arranged for me to take voice lessons and uh, the rest is kind of history. Wow, that's amazing. And so it, it's not necessarily that you had, say, some kind of defining moment where it was like, this is what I want to do. But it was kind of like, um, this is what you're going to do because you're super talented and let's just make this happen for you. That's awesome. And then how did the transition from the, the musical influences you had growing up to going into classical style? How did that happen? Yeah. So I... I'll admit, I really had no exposure to classical music growing up. Absolutely none other than instrumental music. I knew that opera was a thing, but to be quite honest, I had never heard anyone sing classically until my very first voice lesson, my senior year of high school. Um, and my instructor, Carol Marty, um, she was the former voice area head at um, Capital University's voice um, program. Um, she's no longer with us, but she gave me Danza, Danza, Fontrelle, and um, I was just completely out of my element, and I started singing it like it was a pop song. She's like, no, 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 <laughs> and she pulled out recordings, and I was, I just remember being like, people do that with their voice? Oh my gosh. And she's like, yes, and this is what you're going to do. Um, so I learned it, and I also learned a Josh Groban song. Um, and I auditioned, um, I got a full ride, but because of fami familial issues at home, um, that full ride was stripped. Um, and so I didn't get to actually go off to college for a couple of years, um, after high school. But I just remember listening to those recordings that she showed me and just being like, well, that's cool. I mean, I guess it's a means to an end. And then of course, getting to Ohio State, studying with Robin Rice, um, I thought I was going to sing musical theater and he has one lesson with me. He's like, no, no, you're going to do opera. Nope. No musical theater. This is, this is where you belong. Um, and I've kind of not looked back. Yeah. Since. Oh, that's awesome. And then do you have any favorite memories of performing or, um, maybe some favorite shows that you've done in, in your life of performing? Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of all over the place. Um, I guess, 
professionally, um, the, the stuff that I've been able to do with Opera Columbus has always just been such a joy. Um, specifically, the Labo M, the Opera on the Edge, that was so outside of anything that I ever thought that I was going to do. I mean, presenting an, a, you know, a shortened opera in a venue such as Shadowbox Live, I, never in a million years would I have thought I would do that. Um, but la- the past two years prior to the pandemic, um, Opera Columbus did a program called The Journey in the Voice of Freedom. And um, I was a performer for The Voice of Freedom, and it spoke about black issues from slavery to present day the first year. And then the second year, um, it focused on the civil rights movement and the music associated with all of that. Um, but besides being a performer, I was a teaching artist as well for the company. And I got to work with children um, at the Southside Boys and Girls Club, as well as out in uh, the Black Lick area um, in lower SES areas. Um, very similar to where I grew up. And so it was kind of a full circle moment for me um, to get to work with those children in such an underserved area. Um, And then as far as like most fun out of this world experience I had um, in school performing was when we did Candide uh, the second year of my master's program at OSU. And it was just so much fun. And Um, I had veered away from performing, um, other than like choral works and stuff like that. Um, and that was the first time that I really was just like, you know, this isn't so bad because it was, it was basically an operetta and it was as close to musical theater as I've ever gotten, um, to perform professionally or semi-professionally. And it was just so much fun, um, to put on several different masks throughout that production um, and just be silly and, and spread joy through music. Yeah, no, that's amazing. That's amazing. And let's talk a little bit about your transition to teaching from performing and what do you love about teaching and kind of how did that all come about? What was that journey like for you? Yeah, um, from a very, very young age, I recall just loving school absolutely every aspect about it except for the bullying but that stopped in high school um but um in elementary school I was always in accelerated classes um from first grade on and my first grade teacher Miss Southers um she's no longer with us um either but she recognized very quickly that I loved learning um and I have always read at a way higher level than I was supposed to, I guess, in, in K through 12. And so she had me reading novels in first grade. She had created a specific curriculum just for me, um, despite having 30 other students to, you know, to be in charge of. And um, I just remember I was so sad um, towards the end of the school year because I realized it's going to be summer and I'm not going to be in school. And she realized, she asked me, she pulled me off to the side and she said, well, um, I have all of these teacher books and I'm going to let you use them over the summer. I mean, a giant stack of books. She said, what I want you to do is I want you to create lesson plans for yourself, just like we do in class. And I want you to, you know, burn through as much of this as you can over the summer. 
and it kept me busy and I create a little makeshift study in a closet at home. Um, and I remember just like memorizing as many facts as I possibly could. And if I wasn't doing that, then I was watching Zabumafu um, on PBS because um, it was another educational um, opportunity. And I knew from a very early age, like I love learning and I love teaching um, and I love you know, the possibilities of that. And I didn't know what that was going to look like. Um, you know, again, I thought in high school, I wanted to go off and be a biologist or biology teacher. Um, and once I got to school for music, um, I realized, no, like, okay, I'm decent at music and I love teaching. How can I, you know, kind of combine those two? And so I, I started to major in music ed and I very quickly realized that classroom teaching is not for me. Um, and so I switched to performance. Um, and I realized I can teach privately on the side in a one-on-one -on -one setting or smaller groups. Um, and I started experimenting with that during undergrad um, through tutoring. I started an audiation and uh, music theory tutoring um, program at OSU. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And then I started um, giving one-on-one -on -one lessons um, to my friends slash guinea pigs. And uh, I, I realized like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I love this so much. And um, so much so that I decided to go to grad school for voice pedagogy. And then also I got the second master's degree in performance because it was, it was there and I had already fulfilled the requirements for it. Um, and the more that I've had the opportunity to teach, um, the more and more I just just fall in love with with that area but also to to know and to see um just the spark that happens when a concept clicks or when somebody realizes like i'm not too shabby at this you know i'm like i'm pretty good at this i can do this um and the confidence that um you know music lessons especially um builds within people um i i think that you know the study of music helps us to not only understand our corner of the world a little bit better, um, but also opens our eyes to the cultures of the world. Um, if you are lucky enough to, you know, be taught about things outside of your one little bubble. Um, and it also just helps us to more fully realize who we are as a person. I love that. I love that. And as as we both know, I kind of have this hang up about the the phrase making it um, because it is so subjective for everyone. And so do you feel like throughout all of your journey and founding or finding your place right now in, in teaching and what you're doing, do you feel like that's the fulfillment place that you've been searching for and you've kind of found your place? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I love that we share the same idea of, I hate that term, just making it because it is so different for everyone. And um, early on, especially in my collegiate studies, I was just doing what people expected of me. Um, you know, if my professor would say, this is what you should be doing to be successful because this is, you know, this is the career path and these are the steps that you have to do. Um, and I'm a very rebellious person, um, as we have seen already, biology. Um, so I, you know, there were moments where I definitely self-sabotaged um, because I just absolutely hated not feeling in control 
of, of my own life. Um, and I've since, you know, addressed those issues. Um, but from, you know, as a young singer, you know, we trust the people that are in our circle. And those people are usually either our musical influences, if we have the opportunity to speak to them, or our professors. And if they are saying you have to do X, Y, and Z, or else you're not going to make it, that's, that can be quite discouraging. Oh, for sure. And how it's, it's just very much, I feel like in the college programs, this is the path, like you said, and, and not having as much of like, but this is the path and look at how many ways that you can go into it. And it doesn't have to necessarily be the one end all be all and stuff. And so since we're talking about music programs, what other missing pieces do you feel like might be in or that you've either experienced yourself or that you've seen others or your colleagues or your students go into? Um, what, what missing pieces do you feel like there are? Yeah. Um, music business oh, <laughs> out yes. anything outside of performing um never at not a single time was it ever addressed or brought up to me um other than don't teach because the second that you start teaching you're not going to be able to perform that's bogus i've absolutely been able to juggle both it's difficult you know um but you can make it work if you if you want to but the aspects of doing your own taxes as a 1099 contractor or, um, you know, understanding all of the tax laws and write-offs that we can do or that we can make use of as independent contractors, um, as well as how do you promote yourself as a performer without, you know, um, management? How do you find opportunities if, you know, they're out there? I was lucky enough um, that I started with Robin at OSU um, for him to say, okay, these are the programs that exist, Yap Tracker, et cetera. This is, you know, these are the items that you need in your portfolio of sorts. Um, but speaking to colleagues, not all of them had that. Um, and so there are people that I meet now with music degrees um, who are just clueless as to the opportunities that are out there because they were never brought up um, to them. And we always, I won't, well, maybe not always, but oftentimes I find, especially in more classical-oriented programs, we are pigeonholed into this expectation of if you do not graduate and go perform um, on a major stage, you, you're worthless. Um, that was all for not go get a job at Target or whatever. And that's such a horrible, you know, thing um, for so many people because we see so many people drop off that first year in undergrad um, because either they realize like, oh my God, this is way harder than I thought it was ever going to be. Or I had completely different expectations of what this was going to look like. Um, or they just realized like, no, this isn't really where my interests were. I was good at this thing in high school and, and I decided I was going to go on and do this, um, professionally. Um, but we can do so many different things and we can juggle so many different, um, plates and wear many different hats, um, as performers, even if we don't necessarily major in music, um, in college, there are still so many opportunities um, if you're 
willing to look for them or if you know where to look for them. For sure. And I, I definitely agree with all of that. I, I think a lot of times, sometimes the college professors, they've had amazing careers and amazing experiences, but it's so hard to stay on top of all the trends. Like all the trends are changing so fast. And so unless you're kind of in it or in the craze of social media, like how, how would you even know? And so sometimes it's just hard because then it's, they're, they might be limited to, to their experiences or what they think is, is their it for, for instance, and, and then that kind of influences everything else. So that is, that is something that's, I think, really important for current music majors or grad students, or even think people that are considering going into that to just kind of realize off the bat. Cause I, I don't think I had that mindset. It was just kind of like, you know, whatever they say, that's what it's supposed to be and, and all that kind of thing. So I think it's, it's good to have that perspective going in. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, as far as like other things that I felt like were missing, at least in my track of study um, and performance, um, I did not have to take any classes on American music specifically. Um, or music that originated from black culture. Um, whereas like music ed majors did, they had to take one class, but a lot of my colleagues that were in those classes in undergrad, I just remember them saying, oh my God, this is so stupid. This is not relevant to anything that I want to do. Um, and having come from a very diverse, um, you know, upbringing as far as, the, the population of students that were in my schools, yes, it was predominantly black, but there were there was such a melting pot um, of different world cultures within that. And, um, I, you know, I would say to them, like, you know, you don't know where your placements are going to be first off. Um, and even if it isn't something that is your experience, your life experience, we still need to be aware of what is out there so that we can, um, you know, properly or um, more fully um, teach our students to educate them. And, you know, you don't know what's going to walk into your studio or your classroom one day um, and what their life experiences are going to be like. But I am so grateful that, um I was exposed to so many different kinds of music. I wish classical had been more of an emphasis, just whatever. But um, the fact that I did get to see black artists um, or, you know, different um, ethnicities represented uh, in the music that we had at home, it was just so cool. And it was, you know, it was showing me like just because these are your life circumstances there's still more out there it's okay like that is a possibility to see rep- myself represented out there right that's that totally makes sense before we go further please listen to this brief message hi i'm chelsea melcher i'm an opera singer that started a music school with my husband paul now i also love helping stressed out moms that are performers and voice teachers and have a family find balance and fulfillment in their life. You can expect to see all sorts of things from me going from performing, teaching, balancing, and everything in between. 
I'm really excited to share with you a project that I've been working on called Nerves Be Gone Academy. It's finally ready and I'm super excited to share it with you. How it started is it has broken my heart to see students with so much potential, so much talent, and then they get in their heads, they self-sabotage and everything just goes out the window. All of their training, all of their talent, they're not performing to their fullest potential because they get in their heads and we can play these crazy mental games with ourselves that can wipe all of the prep out the window. And so what I started to do is I've used techniques that I've used with myself and in teaching myself how to have more confidence, how to manage performance anxiety. And then what I did is I organized them and the tips that I use with my students, I put them all together in a course. And so that course is available now, an online course, so you can do it at your own time. There's video lessons and there's supported PDF documents that go with each lesson. And those can be yours now. It's called nervesbegoneacademy.com. So if this is something that, if I'm speaking your language here, if you are a performer and you want to manage your performance anxiety, or if you just wanna have more confidence in general, or if you're a voice teacher, but you want a proven method that has worked with other students from another voice teacher, then go check it out because these techniques have been proven. I've used them on myself and I've also used them with my students and I can see them going from absolute basket cases to there's been students that actually had to run off the stage because they were so nervous and it just everything fell apart on the stage. And then throughout working with them on these techniques, they went on to get solos, to get leading roles. And I can just, I watch them on the stage now and I'm like, wow, I'm so proud. I could not be more proud of you. And so go to nervesbegoneacademy.com if this is something that you are interested in. Now back to the show. And that very much ties into at this time when we're recording this episode, we are in Black History Month. Um, and so talk a little bit about the significance of that to you personally and um, maybe how special it is or maybe some of the pains and the struggles that you've gone through um, in your life to get to the point where you are today for whatever amount that you're comfortable sharing. Um, so a lot of people, when they first meet me, they think I am Latino and I am not. I'm actually biracial. Um, my mother's Caucasian and my father is African-American. Um, and from a very, very early age, I just remember my parents having a talk with me about, you know, these are the, the things that you might have to face growing up as a biracial um, person. And as an adult, even, um, because my complexion is fairer, um, I am oftentimes told you're not black enough to talk about these types of things. Um, but I do identify as black, um, you know, even if I'm only half. Um, and as far as being black in America and specifically in music, um, when we look at American popular musics, everything traces back to work songs or enslaved people's uh, music. Um, the vast majority of it um, is found in and originating in America. And um, again, we can look at 
black pop music, which also includes rap. Um, it can be traced backwards by way of hip hop, which originated in black communities of New York City in the 70s, um, which was influenced by rock and roll, which um, despite what we're told, it wasn't invented by Elvis Presley, but now we uh, credit it to Sister Rosetta Tharp. And we can move backwards from rock and roll. We get to jazz music, which we still hear trickles of today um, in music. Um, and we can tie that to modern day artists such as Billie Eilish, um, who states that some of her musical influences included Frank Sinatra. Um, an exercise that I like to do with some of my students, um, especially those who just primarily live within one bubble of music, um, or who think like, oh, I listen to country music, that has nothing to do with, you know, black music. Um, I will say, okay, well, let's look at one of your favorite artists and let's just trace back through interviews in their own words um, and see if we can get back to uh, work songs. And uh, one uh, such person that comes up quite often is Taylor Swift, um, who states that uh, she draws influence from Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton drew influence from Rose Maddox, who drew influence from Jimmy Rogers, who, although he's credited as the father of country music, he primarily lived within the blues genre, which comes from black musical traditions. Um, and then we look at the blues or the rhythm and blues uh, music, which was born from spirituals, which were in turn born directly from work songs or chants of black enslaved people. So, um, those are all things that I was not taught necessarily in school. Um, those are things that my parents um, just, you know, they said very early on, um, <laughs> like there's, you know, there is representation out there, but um, the world that you live in is going to be vastly different than what has actually happened, you know? Um, as far as where does the influence come from? Um, and, you know, as an adult, reflecting on that and going through academia and realizing none of that was ever taught to me in, you know, in an academic setting and having to do that research for myself, it's really opened up my eyes um, as far as representation as a, as a Black um, musician um, it's, it's wild that we don't talk about it, really. Um, one of my favorite classical composers is Samuel Coleridge Taylor, who's an Afro-European. Um, his father was enslaved, um, was able to escape all of that, um, had Samuel Coleridge Taylor with a Caucasian woman in Europe, um, didn't know that she was pregnant, and then he shipped back off um, elsewhere. And... Uh, Coleridge Taylor is credited to, um, oh gosh, his Choral Cantata trilogy, Hiawatha's Wedding Feast, for instance, was the most performed choral masterwork until Handel's Messiah. Um, and that spanned for at least two decades. Um, he wrote piano music, he wrote chamber music, he wrote violin solo music, he wrote vocal works, choral works, etc. And we don't necessarily hear about him... Um, nearly as, as much as we should. Um, in my music history classes, it was all European artists um, or composers. Not a single Black composer um, had been mentioned. And thinking of other minority groups, 
um, or lesser represented groups, women composers. Um, I literally had only been exposed to Fanny Mendelssohn, but there are so many brilliant um, women composers in classical music history as well, and we just aren't taught about them very often. Um, so as an adult now, and as a professional musician, if you will, I'm grateful, I'm so grateful for um, these issues actually being more relevant to the masses. And um, people are waking up to, wow, American history kind of sucks <laughs> um, for everyone um, who is of, of, um, of color, really. And, um, you know, doing programs like The Voice of Freedom, where we were able to go all over Columbus and educate people through um, narration, through singing, through um, all that those programs encompassed. It was so fulfilling. Um, and so often people would come up to us after those performances and say, I had no idea that that's what happened. Um, and oftentimes they would ask, how can I help? I, I want to, you know, I want to be better. This opened my eyes. What can I do? And oftentimes I would say, you can be an ally without overstepping bounds, you know, um, but we have to first understand what those bounds are and what they look like to different people. Um, just as, um, I'm just going to use a singer analogy really quick, just as we say, what does a sound feel like to you when you are able to produce a tone? What does it feel like to you so that I can create that common knowledge or that common language with you? Um, no two people's life experience is exactly the same, even twins. Um, and so what we interpret as, you know, this is totally fine. Somebody else can find that deeply hurtful. Um, and it can really trigger an emotional response from them. Um, and so when we look at um, works like uh, Porgy and Best, for instance, Gershwin states in the score, it's to be performed by African-Americans. <laughs> and there was a European um, company uh, that did not have people of color in the cast, and it caused a huge uproar a couple of years ago. Um, and then, of course, we see, you know, even more contemporary things like Hamilton. Um, people are really, really defensive over certain things because as, as Black musicians, within certain genres, we don't have many things that are our own. Um, and while I am of the belief that, you know, we should study those things. If it states by the composer, the person that created it, um, don't do it unless you fit these criteria because of these issues, because it is relative to the Black um, American experience. There's still something to be gained from studying those things. Perhaps we don't perform them um, in public. Um, but, I mean, I see so often spirituals on um, teacher forums that's a hot topic. Um, my student wants to sing Go Down Moses, or my student wants to sing 
um, Ride on King Jesus or Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child or any of the other, you know, big spirituals. Um, and so many teachers kind of walk on eggshells. I'm Caucasian. Am I allowed to teach this? Yes. <laughs> you know? Um, and it's just, it's so, it, it, it depends on the audience and it depends on, you know, individual people's interpretation or their life experience. Um, again, something that I might see as not an issue at all. Somebody else might say, oh my God, that's deeply hurtful. How could you ever? And I think when those instances happen, um, that's an opportunity for a conversation to happen. Um, and to ask, well, what is it about this um, that offends you or upsets you? I want to understand that. Um, and we can grow from that, you know? And I, I'm so glad that you have me on here and to talk about these issues because, you know, we can think and be all heady as much as we want, you know? Um, and if we're not communicating about harder issues or topics that, you know, get under some people's skin, there is, there's really limited opportunity for growth to happen. Um, or for people to understand the experiences outside of their own echo chamber or their own bubble. So, yeah. I love that. I love that. And I, no, I really appreciate your openness about it because I think that, um, sometimes, especially with something, an issue as sensitive as this can be, there's sometimes a fear for people or, or say that maybe one party would just get emotionally triggered, but then almost maybe say something or attack the other party or how dare you, or how could you, when there can, as you said, there can be subjective things. So can you, let's use the example of a spiritual. And so say that there's a, a, a Caucasian student that wants to sing a spiritual and then the teacher is like, Okay, but then what happens when there is there's a person that might be emotionally triggered or find offense to that, whereas another person may not? I mean, how would you go about that? You know, um, we talk about cultural appropriation all the time in, in ethics courses and, and stuff like that and um, versus ethnic appreciation. And whenever I have given a Caucasian student or a student who is not black, um, a spiritual, um, whenever that conversation has come up, I, you know, I say, I understand where you're coming from. Hi, I'm a person of color as well. Um, and, you know, it's not, it's not the same as somebody who does not come from a certain culture at all and then adopting everything about that culture because it looks cool or whatever and they you know um they code switch into whatever vernacular is being used it's an opportunity to bring awareness and you know to um bring ink on a page to life um and to keep that alive um you know the, the term of if we forget history, we're bound to repeat it. You know, these things, these, um, these stories, these, these hardships um, that uh, an entire population of people 
um, went through for hundreds of years, um, we can't just turn a blind eye to it, you know? And as painful as it may be to have those conversations or to relive those moments, I think it, me personally, this is my opinion, um, I think it's important that we still honor that music. I think it's important that we still present it in a way that's respectable. You know, um, if I have a student um, that I assign a spiritual to and it is in a vernacular that is not um, something that would probably be seen as favorable in today's atmosphere, um, then we might change that selection. Um, we might not necessarily speak um, in um, Ebonics or um, the African-American vernacular. Um, we may change some words, you know, and hope that we don't offend someone and understand that, you know, there's always going to be that risk of upsetting somebody, but when we look at the music that we perform, um, there's always some kind of risk that people are going to get offended. I remember performing at the Italian festival, and I was a freshman in college, and I had no idea what I was doing diction-wise. It was the first semester of study, and I had never taken Italian diction. And I, I think I was singing um, Seben Crudele, and a little old lady hobbled up right in front of me, I mean, got right up in my face, listened to the entire song, and she just said, Ugh, that was disgusting. How could you dare bastardize this language? And it was so hurtful to me um, in that moment because my ego just ding, you know? Um, I thought I sang it decently for where I was at in my understanding of, of, the, of the music, and I thanked her for her commentary. And, um, I said, I hope to do better in the future. And so, you know, even this conversation, I'm sure there will be people that listen and they'll say, oh, he doesn't represent, you know, our life experience or whatever. But, um, the, the discussions have to, to they have to happen. And, um, to anyone listening that may be offended by anything that I say, let's have a conversation let me understand, you know, where are you coming from so that I can be better. And back on my door, if this is recorded anywhere, I have a quote by uh, Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Once you know better, do better. And I live that day to day and I try my best to instill that with all of my students. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for that. And I mean, it, it sounds like the best way to go about this is what I'm interpreting from this conversation is if it's stated that there needs to be a specific ethnicity of some sort to do it, then of course to honor that. Um, if it's not so per se like a, a spiritual in a way of, of someone singing that they're celebrating it, they're bringing it to life, they're respecting it in a way and so it, the intention is not to provide disrespect like oh well you're not a person of color how dare you sing this but it's like this is beautiful music if if I don't you know I want to bring it to life I want to to really spread the word about it and uh, and so is that what you're you're saying right Absolutely. okay yep yep awesome no I love that I think that is is a very cautious and thoughtful 
way to go about such a sensitive topic for, for so many people these days. So that's, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being on this. And I do have a, a random question for you. Let's talk for a second about your hair because it's amazing. And um, <laughs> where do you get your hair done? Because let's just talk about that for a second. I just do it myself. Um, growing up poor, you learn how to cut your own hair. And um, as a biracial person, uh, my hair is not like my mother's. And any biracial person um, <laughs> whose hair is unlike one of their parents or both of their parents, um, they will talk about their struggles and trying to figure out what works for them and what doesn't. And I'm still experimenting. Um, 33 years old, I'm still trying to figure out what works for me. And I like my curls. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. working. It is working. Hey. If you are listening on the <laughs> podcast right now, go to our YouTube channel and check out Justin's hair because you're definitely going to want to look at this. So awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Justin, so much for joining us uh, today. We're, it was such a pleasure to have you. Um, and is there anything that you want to leave us with today? The quote by Dr. Maya Angelou. Do the best you can until you know better. Once you know better, do better. Love it. Love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Justin. Thanks, Chelsea. <laughs> I want you to imagine what it would be like if you had so much focus, so much zen, so much peace, so much calmness, and so much excitement at the same time before performance. As in, like, you're not getting in your head, you're not freaking out, you're not becoming a basket case, or you're not a hot mess. So if you feel like sometimes that is you, imagine what it would feel like if that wasn't the case, if that wasn't a problem anymore. It would be pretty awesome, right? So what is the first step to that? working with your mindset. So if this is something that's of interest to you, I recommend going to stopcaringwhatthethink.com. If you're a performer and you wanna have more confidence, if you wanna get out of your head, these are tips and tricks that I'm offering to you for free. It's a free resource that can help you have more confidence to manage that anxiety and just to feel like you can enjoy life again. You can enjoy performing. That's what it's all about, right? So stopcaringwhatthethink.com. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I hope that you enjoyed it and learned something. Don't forget to like it and subscribe to the channel. I post new videos every Wednesday and a new podcast every Friday. 